Hi, you are listening to DNA Dialogues, where we dive into the intricate world of genetic counseling research. I'm Kate Wilson. I'm Kalita Leopold. I'm Naomi Wagner. And And we we are are your your co-hosts. Join us as we peel back the layers of groundbreaking articles from the Journal of Genetic Counseling, bringing you exclusive discussions with the authors themselves. Each episode sparks a vibrant exchange, exploring the latest discoveries, ethical dilemmas, and technological advances that are shaping the future of medical genetics. From navigating complex testing decisions to building trust with diverse communities, listen in as we unpack the science, challenge assumptions, and celebrate the human connection at the heart of genetic counseling research. So grab your headphones, unravel the double helix, and prepare to be captivated by the array of voices in DNA Dialogues, a podcast where the blueprint of life meets intimate human conversation. Welcome to the first episode of DNA Dialogues. Today is February 29th, 2024. It is a leap year, so today marks an extra special rare disease day. Rare diseases can impact so many people, from patients themselves to families to broader communities. To celebrate Rare Disease Day, we are going to dive into two recent articles from the Journal of Genetic Counseling that showcase the rare disease experience. The following interviews provide insight into the wider impact of rare disease, with a special focus on families. Joining us to talk about her recent article titled Understanding Type and Quality of Relationships Between Individuals with Chromosome 18 Syndromes and Their Siblings is Dr. Katherine Larson. Dr. Katherine Larson is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and a sibling to Elizabeth, who has a chromosome 18 deletion. After earning her undergraduate degree, she worked as a research assistant at the Chromosome 18 Research Center, where she began her research on sibling relationships. Dr. Larson earned her medical degree from the University of Texas School of Medicine at San Antonio. She then went on to complete a general psychiatry residency program, followed by a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. As a practicing psychiatrist, Dr. Larson opened her private practice in Austin, Texas, and she also returned to join the research team at the Chromosome 18 Research Center. So welcome, Dr. Larson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So before we dive in, can you start by telling us a bit about the conception of this study? Yeah, this study um, was a very long time in the making. I started it when I had a gap year in between undergrad and medical school, and I took a job as a research assistant at the Chromosome 18 Clinical Research Center. My interest in Chromosome 18 comes from my sister, who was born with a deletion on her 18th chromosome. And uh, of course, it's very rare. This is back in the day when these things were diagnosed by a karyotype and we get the black and white picture. Very different technology in 1985 than what we have today. There wasn't really much known except that it was very rare. My mom decided to start a nonprofit organization to get the families together. We were told there were about 60 in the world. And I love her quote that she likes to say that of those 60, we know about 4,000 of them. Organization has grown quite a bit over the years, almost 30 years now. And she also went back to school, got a PhD in genetics, started the research center for chromosome 18, the only place in the world focused on chromosome 18. And um, so I was working there as a research assistant. I was planning to go to medical school for psychiatry, so I have an interest in family relationships, 
development, behavioral science. So that is the data that I was entering into a large database. And some of the surveys that they had sent out to families were the family environment scale and parental stress index. So there's talking about the, the family dynamics when one person in the family has a genetic condition. And I started to wonder, you know, what would happen if we sent this to siblings? I wonder what they would say. And I took my question to the director of the center, who is my mom. So she said, wow, that's a great question. Why don't you go answer it? So I said, okay, let's, let's try to answer it. And this is coming from many years of me going to the conference. And these, these annual conferences, they're really wonderful events. They are a chance for the research team from UT Health to talk about the latest research on chromosome 18, bring in experts, bring in the doctors who are caring for these families, and also get the families together to network and, and meet each other and learn from each other and make those connections. And there's child care for the younger affected kids. There is a parent track for the parents to, to learn all the latest research. And there was kind of nothing to do for the siblings at first. And so we sort of organically grew this group where we essentially kind of had process groups of talking about what it's like to have a sibling with a chromosome 18 syndrome. I had been doing this for so many years that I had a lot of ideas when I started my lit search. So I was reading about siblings of all different types of genetic conditions. It was interesting to see that there are some themes that are fairly universal among siblings with a wide range of genetic conditions. And then there's some things that are very specific to certain groups that are highly variable uh, among the different groups. And of course, there was nothing in the literature about siblings of kids with chromosome 18 changes. And so this was the first study to look at that specifically. I did notice that there was a lot of emphasis on the negative effects of having a sibling with a genetic condition. I didn't hear much about the positive pieces. So it sounds like this was both personal and professional for you. I'm, I'm curious, as you dove into the data, what were some of the emotions that the siblings reported regarding their brother or sister with a disability? Well, like I said, one of the things that kind of stood out to me in the previous literature with, was that there was a focus on negative effects. And it wasn't that any of it seemed wrong. It just didn't seem complete to me. It just felt like we were kind of focusing more or the previous literature was focusing more on the negative impacts. And it didn't seem to uh, mesh with the things that I had heard from the siblings when I met with them year after year at the family conferences where they, like every sibling relationship, they did report negative feelings. Um, but there was, it was generally overwhelmingly positive. And that was um, interesting to me. And so when we designed this study, I made sure to add in specific questions to try to capture some of those positive feelings that potentially were present in the previous groups that were studied, but just nobody asked about them. And so of course they didn't get reported. One statistic that stood out to me was that over 90% of the siblings in both of the age groups reported thinking about their brother or sister makes them smile. And I think it's great that that was something you were able to capture through your survey. Yes, this question, I remember reading that. And I think that that was one of the reasons I chose to use Marsha Van Riper's surveys as a template for my study, because 
the language that she used, it seemed very um, just approachable and it seemed like it was trying to capture a wide range of feelings rather than just calculating whether there's a higher incidence of depression, for example, which is what some of the other studies were looking at. And so I liked her survey and she had looked at several other rare genetic conditions and had surveyed those siblings. And so we called her up and said, hey, we really like your survey. Can we make, can we see your original survey and can we adapt it and use it in our study? And she ended up collaborating with us, which was wonderful. And I think this question was very inspiring to me because that is it re very much resonates with the feeling of having a sibling with a chromosome 18 syndrome and how just sweet they are and how much uh, love and light they bring to your life. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that that was out also out there in the literature. Absolutely. Another thing I'm curious about is how the siblings responded to the common assumption that their affected sibling or brother or sister with the condition is a burden on the family. Yes, this was a theme that came up quite a bit at the family conferences that I made sure that we asked about, that there is a lot of dislike of that general assumption, not always from specific people, but just general messages they're getting from society or from others that that would be a really terrible thing to have someone with special needs in the family. And they also sort of felt this need to advocate or this responsibility to advocate for all of the positive things that their brother or sister brings to their family life. Another theme that was brought up was the sense of responsibility that the siblings reported feeling. How did the participants feel about that role or those feelings of responsibility? Generally, uh, most of the kids had positive feelings about being responsible for their brother or sister. Especially in the younger kids, it was more common to hear things like, I always have to be the one who cleans up XYZ. And they were very practical type things that would frustrate them. And that was one small discrepancy that I remember seeing between the parents and the kids that they felt a little bit more frustrated about having to help with just ADL type basic tasks uh, more than the parents realized. But the thing that the children all seemed to, the siblings all seemed to pick up on was this responsibility, which they liked to help and support and come up with ways, come up with better ways to take care of their brother or sister, come up with ways to integrate them with their peers, come up with ways to help them to have a better life. And that was something that was probably never directly asked of them. It's just something that's sort of almost seemed innate in these typically developing siblings. And you mentioned parents. My understanding is parents and siblings were surveyed as part of the study. And I'm curious more about some of the perceptions of the parents that you found in this study. Yeah, there was, uh, we did, we did, um, surveys for both parents and for the kids and the parent surveys were all focused on what their child does says feels and how they interact with their sibling and for the most part they were pretty congruent in what they reported there were some small um, differences parents were more likely to think that the typically developing siblings felt embarrassed but that was actually very rarely reported there were not many sibs who really felt embarrassed of their sibling one of the other ones was the, I alluded to earlier, the frustration that 
younger kids feel a little bit more frustrated, um, especially having, having to help with daily tasks, which they didn't want to do. And one of the recurring conversations that we have at the family conferences is that some of our siblings kind of take advantage maybe of the fact that they're not capable of maybe taking out the trash or uh, some other things and the siblings will resent it because we all know that when mom and dad aren't looking, they can actually do those things. And they just have this um, this act going on that they're unable to do it, which I, I thought was interesting. And, and most of the, the kids that filled out the survey agreed with that. One of the areas that we asked questions about was information. So how much the siblings have learned about the condition, how much they know about their brother or sister. Um, in our group, we found a lot of uh, agreement that there was pretty open communication in the family. The parents seem to maybe overestimate the amount that the especially younger children understood and what they knew and how comfortable they felt educating others or talking about what's happening. And the parents said that they felt their children probably were satisfied with the amount of information that they knew. But what the siblings actually reported was that they had a lot of questions but weren't asking them as frequently or they had curiosity or desire to know, especially even at younger ages. And really they didn't report asking a lot of questions until they were older. And so this was kind of a take home point to me was trying to express to the parents that before the siblings are even asking questions, they are curious and they're very hungry to learn more, just like the parents are. The parents, you know, some parents are traveling across the world to meet with these other families at a conference because they really want to know more. And the siblings want to know more too, understandably, but they don't really have the means all the time to get these answers. And so that's a way that parents and genetic counselors or other professionals can really provide that support is because those siblings are really wanting to know more than they're being taught. It sounds like a lot of the questions were able to be very specific based on what you and others had learned at family conferences and from patient experiences. There are lots of rare diseases out there, and many of our listeners might be researchers or genetic counselors who are curious to ask some similar questions about patients or communities they work with or are a part of. What advice do you have for these researchers in figuring out what questions to ask and how to approach their community? So I would say if there's a a group that you are interested in or a question you're interested in, follow your curiosity. Uh, Curiosity is, is kind of what led to this entire study. I was just curious, wanting to know more um, about what these um, experiences are for these kids and how can we get this out there into the literature so that people know about what these unique circumstances are like and how we can help these kids because some of the recommendations that we made in the paper are things that really would apply to most siblings of any kind of rare condition. So what are some of the takeaways you would share to healthcare providers or genetic counselors about addressing family relationships or sibling relationships with regard to genetic conditions or rare diseases? I think there's a couple things that especially genetic counselors or really any professional that's working with families can do. And I think they it may not be obvious, but the impact of just inviting a sibling into the room 
when you're having an appointment or when you are having important conversations, even just inviting them there, even if they're not able to come, but you are planting that seed for how important they are. I think siblings don't get as much credit as they should because the sibling relationship is pivotal in every child's development. And as you know, I'm a child psychiatrist, so you know, all of our um, literature and in the psychology literature, it's all about, you know, parents and child, mother and child. Siblings are really not focused on that much, uh, but they are so important. And for most people, their siblings are the longest relationship that they're going to have in their life. If you can invite them in, bring them into the conversation, and not only are you helping them by bringing them in, you're also modeling for the parents the fact that they should be included in these conversations. Providing education specifically for that sibling. If you're talking with a family and, and teaching them, you know, there are some ways that you communicate with the parents and how you explain things to the parents. And then making sure that you are also giving messages that are developmentally appropriate for the typically developing siblings. And maybe in the genetic counseling world, you think about this, you know, on your radar, but I think for a lot of parents, it's maybe not so obvious that the typically developing siblings might worry like they'll catch down syndrome or something like that. Or, you know, I yelled at mom while she was pregnant and the next day she found out that my brother has down syndrome. Did I cause it? These kind of things that, you know, parents obviously know that those aren't true, but the children might not. And those kind of things can be a worry in the back of their mind for years that we can easily get rid of. We can easily alleviate that fear. And I think the final thing that's important is modeling open communication of feelings. As I said, in our study, we found, you know, as you would expect, a wide range of feelings, positive and negative. The unique thing about siblings of kids with special needs is that a lot of times those negative feelings are unacceptable. And so if you can imagine, you're only allowed to feel the pride and the joy for your brother or sister. You're not allowed to be mad at them. Imagine what that would do to you growing up if every time you got angry at your brother or sister because they stole your toy, you were told, don't be mad at him, he has Down syndrome. Then you're not able to feel that normal range of emotion and our families are a template for what relationships are gonna be like. And so modeling the fact that it's okay to talk about what our feelings are, it's okay if they're bad, it's okay if they're good, it's okay if they're everything in between, and we're gonna be able to talk about that and you wanna be able to model that for the families as well. And I would say one final thing is giving resources for groups of other people with the siblings of other kids with the same condition. There are so many examples I can think of when we've met kids at the conference who have come for the first time. They have never met anybody else who has a brother or sister with a chromosome 18 syndrome. And it's amazing to watch the transformation that happens when they come into the group and they'll sort of look down and sheepishly say, has anybody else ever felt like blah, blah, blah? And they look up like they're afraid somebody's going to throw something at them. And instead everybody says, yes, me too. Yes. Well, we talk about that all the time. And just the weight that you can just see lifted off their shoulders is incredible to see that for the first time and let them really realize that they are not alone and remove some of that isolation that they can feel from being in a family with a rare condition is really meaningful and it can be life-changing. So if you know of these resources, um, if that's something you can provide to families, I think it can be re very meaningful.
Absolutely. Um, any last comments you'd like to share with our listeners? If you're curious about a group, if you're passionate about it, you can make it happen. I'm not a researcher, but we made this research happen and um, anyone can do it. Read the article, uh, learn about chromosome 18. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Larson. Thank you for having me again. So joining us to talk about the recent Journal of Genetic Counseling paper, Families Experiences, Accessing Care After Genomic Sequencing in the Pediatric Cancer Context. It's just been a big juggle. Our genetic counselors, Blake Vucolo and Sarah Scollin. Blake is a research genetic counselor at Baylor College of Medicine, and Sarah is an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at Baylor and a genetic counselor at Texas Children's Hospital. Welcome, Blake and Sarah. Thank you, Kate. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. So I figure we would dive in and chat more about the paper. And we will also include some links in the show notes um, with your biographies um, and some additional information. But I think to kind of get us started, the study that you talk about in the paper involves the Texas Kids Can Seek or KCS study. So I was hoping one of you could provide us an an overview of the study and, and what are the objectives in implementing genomic sequencing in pediatric oncology? The Texas Kids Can Seek study was part of a larger NIH consortium referred to as the Clinical Sequencing Evidence Generating Research Consortium, or CSER. This consortium came together in 2017. It was actually the second phase of CSER, really with the goal to generate evidence regarding the clinical utility of genomic sequencing, but particularly with a focus on underrepresented populations in genomics research. So as a part of that, the Texas Kids Can Seek study, we were an NHGRI and NCI funded study focused on the pediatric oncology population, really looking at evaluating the utility and improving implementation of genomic sequencing within the population, looking at that in the diverse patient populations of Texas, as well as the diverse healthcare settings of Texas. So as a part of the project, we brought together several sites across the state of Texas. Being the size study it was, there were several aims. Certainly we had clinical aims looking at things like what was the best testing that we could utilize to help identify patients who had hereditary cancer predisposition as well as optimizing uh, somatic testing. But I think really the focus of where Blake's work falls was our aims around family perspective, thinking about how we can best communicate these results and have families use these results, healthcare utilization, cascade testing, that type of thing. And that's the space that this research study falls into. So you talked about working with underserved populations and utilizing diversity that's in the state of Texas. So was it to look at people from a variety of backgrounds, like different socioeconomic status, ethnicity? Yes, all of the above. So diversity really was a a broad definition within CSER and in the Kids Can Seek study. So we were looking at racial ethnic diversity, language diversity. You know, we have a very large Spanish speaking population in the state of Texas, looking at socioeconomic diversity. So in thinking about these centers, they were representative not only of large academic medical centers, but more clinical centers community centers, thinking about all of the different types of resources that different clinical settings might have in the state of Texas. Blake, were you doing this research study as part of your role at Baylor or were you a student at the time? So I was a student at the time. This was my thesis project. Very exciting. Okay. So just want to let folks know too that thesis do get published. Yes. (laughs) 
Are there any compelling stories or experiences that stood out during the interviews that you conducted with these families and some of the things that they learned about a cancer predisposition syndrome diagnosis? In terms of learning about the cancer predisposition syndrome diagnosis, no specific stories really come to mind, but I think the overall trend was that families were really appreciative of receiving these results. Of course, families talked about how they were devastated to find out that not only did their child have cancer, but they also had a susceptibility to future cancers. And there were some families who also talked about other emotions like feeling guilty or feeling even helplessness, especially families where these uh, cancer predisposition syndromes were inherited. However, parents still stressed the importance of knowing about this syndrome so that they could take preventative measures for themselves and their families. And so the responses to me were just a testament to the fact that all families deserve to have access to this information if they want it. Would you say that some of the patients that were undergoing the testing, they were able to maybe find out some reasoning or, or a genetic cause behind the cancer that they currently had, but would you also say it was sometimes incidental findings of cancer predisposition syndromes? I think in some cases, uh, families were surprised by the results, especially in terms of they thought maybe it was going to come from the dad's side or the mom's side, and it, it came from opposite side. So that was something that families described as being surprising and kind of having to shift gears and reevaluate their health. That's really where we saw that guilt come in as well when they weren't expecting it to come from them. Yeah. I think a, another component related to kind of incidental secondary finding realm is, you know, everything that, at least in the interviews that Blake did, was related to cancer and, and the testing. So, but sometimes we did find conditions like adult onset conditions where they weren't necessarily known to be related to the childhood cancer. So in some ways, you know, that could have been surprising information as well. So identifying something like a BRCA1 mutation. One of the things too that you're, finding or one of the, the things that was highlighted was some of the difficulties that families faced and differing follow-up care recommendations related to their current cancer treatment versus something like a predisposition syndromes. Currently what they're being treated for versus maybe something that would be more risk management or reducing the risk of developing cancers. So I didn't know if you could add some more to that or, or what were the consequences of the confusion between current cancer treatment versus the predisposition syndrome? There's a twofold answer. One thing is to put a little bit of clinical context around it. And I think then Blake can really speak to what she heard from the families. But I think one thing that's important to know for these families is many of the families we interviewed were actively going through cancer treatment at the time of the interview. Just as an example, although this took place at many sites at Texas Children's, we have a cancer prevention and screening clinic where our patients are referred if they're identified with one of these conditions. This cohort of patients would have been referred. But what that team does, especially during active cancer treatment, is they'll work alongside the treating oncologist to really try to streamline the screen screening. So if they're already getting scans done for their, their treatment, um, they can add on anything additional that's needed for screening. And I think by making that streamlined and kind of being effective in the approach that we were aiming for, we realized, you know, that there was this, uh, this area where families really weren't necessarily recognizing the difference. And that was an important finding to be aware of. And I, Blake, I think you probably can talk about what you heard from families in that regard. Yeah, I think something else that's important to bring up is just that we as genetic counselors know that families often forget details that we share in return results sessions. 
Um, and I think that the pediatric oncology space is distinct in that these children are often in an acute stage of their cancer care when they're undergoing this testing and getting the results. And so there's already so many things going on in these families' lives that it's understandable that they forget certain factors. I think another thing is, is that participants often stated that there were so many tests as part of their cancer care. I think families started to just assume that everything was being covered for their CPS care as well. And we know that they that may not be the case in reality. So our major concern for this finding was that families may not know what they need to continue to follow up on when their children go into remission, and therefore they may become lost to follow up. And so when we were thinking about this as a team, we felt that genetic counselors really could improve care by offering longitudinal genetic counseling in pediatric oncology so that they could meet with these families again when their children go into remission and talk about the recommended care that's necessary to continue to follow up on for their CPS. And that I can say is something we we were already, you know, putting into practice um, we have the AACR Pediatric Oncology Series is a series of papers that came about a few years ago with recommendations around surveillance, but there was a genetic counseling paper that really pointed out there were three time points um, that we should be thinking about genetic counseling. So if a child was diagnosed at a young age, obviously there's genetic counseling at that point, but when they reach adolescence because their questions change and when they reach the age where they might be thinking about family planning and the questions change. And so I think Blake's findings here really complemented that need. Um, and so it's something we've really actively implemented in our clinic to have the kids return for genetic counseling as they get older um, and as they're approaching, you know, aging out of the, the pediatric system and coming back to really revisit the questions that they have and revisit the recommendations. So I, I think that was a, a a piece that really came out of this research that was put into clinical action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting to think about the genetic counseling ongoing, right? Instead of a, a one and done type of thing, which yep. sometimes it may be more in the adult setting when you're thinking about like predisposition syndromes. One of the things I think that the study really intrigued me about it, and I love the quotes that you included from the patients in the paper, was their discussion on barriers to the follow-up care, not just the genetic counseling, but it was more so just overall having a, a cancer diagnosis management, like you said, if there's remission or if it's more screening monitoring, and that some of the barriers that were mentioned and how some folks saw it as a barrier, some folks didn't as much. So I didn't know if you could could elaborate more on what some of the families shared about the, the barriers to follow-up care. Yeah, of course. And and throughout the paper, we have pretty thorough descriptions of the barriers and facilitators that we've seen. But I think the one that uh, was most salient was, or one of the ones that was most salient was the travel being a barrier. And so when we think about pediatric cancer predisposition syndromes, many are rare, and these specialized centers are often located in these big cities. Um, so when we think about Texas, um, where this study took place, there's a lot of suburban and rural areas. And so it was very common for families to have to travel. Um, sometimes families traveled up to eight hours. So it was quite a distance for many of these families. And as a consequence, knowing that we worked with underserved families, um, this brought up several financial concerns for um, some of these parents. So they talked about, you know, having to 
pay for gas, having to find hotels um, to stay at, worrying about not being able to feed their family when they're going on these trips. And so it was really important for these families to have coordinated care whereby all of their appointments were done in one to two days time. As you mentioned, there were some instances where families were saying, oh, it's only a four hour drive. You know, it's it's not a barrier. We thought that was interesting. And we think it's because they had wanted to do anything for their child. They wanted to make sure that they could get whatever care necessary for their children. Throughout this cancer treatment, they got used to traveling for three to four hours. It still was a barrier, but over time, they didn't view it as a barrier anymore. I think something else that came from this study that I thought was very interesting was that idea of transition of care from pediatric to adult space. A few families brought up some barriers they faced as their children aged out, including a lack of coordinated care on the adult side that they loved in terms of the pediatric care. And they also felt that, especially for some of these pediatric CPS conditions that are a little more rare, they felt that the provider knowledge on the adult side was more limited and they didn't get the same quality of care as they did in the pediatric setting. And then finally, families talked about how insurance changed for their children as they aged out of Medicaid. And they really worried about whether their children would continue to get this follow-up care for their children as they went into the adult space. And then kind of in the same lines, we also found that adult family members had differences in access, primarily related to insurance. We diagnosed the pediatric patient with a cancer predisposition syndrome, but in turn, we also found out that a parent had it as well, uh, but they lacked insurance and they weren't able to get the follow-up care that we had recommended. And so I think this is really important because these cancer predisposition syndromes are family diseases. And so we have to start thinking about the implications that they have on all family members who are diagnosed with them. I think that's a good point. And one of the things I think that was interesting about the, the study design, so you did semi-structured interviews and it was sort of a qualitative theme analysis. And I believe, did you interview families units or was it more individual interviews? Yeah. So some of the interviews did have either both parents participate. We had a parent and, and a child who had aged out participate in one of the interviews. So it, it was really whoever wanted to be a part was, was allowed. Okay. And so you kind of got some folks maybe at different time points, I guess, in their treatment. What led you to set up the study the way that you did and to, to conduct the interviews and to do the theme analysis in the manner that you did? as a, a backstory, we did have a question on the baseline survey of Kids Could Seek when families enrolled into the major part of the project that asked if they had any barriers to accessing care for their children in the last 12 months. What we found is that a lot of people said no, and we were very surprised by that because we were thinking that Kids Can Seek prioritized working with underserved patients. We thought that they would have barriers. And so we started to think that maybe the wording of the question made people feel like it was blaming them, or maybe they didn't view their non-medical barriers as barriers to accessing care. And so when we designed this project, we really wanted to do qualitative work because we felt that using these open-ended questions would allow families to tell their stories and that we could use their voices to find these barriers that we suspected were there. 
And it sounds like, again, like I said, for anyone that is interested to read the paper, because I think there's some good quotes and insights um, because it was open-ended. And so some of the things that the families did share. And you mentioned the transition, I think, from pediatrics to adults. So it seems like there's an opportunity for healthcare systems um, or providers to kind of support that transition. Were there other areas or places that you can see the healthcare or communities helping families or how they can best support families in pediatric oncology? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a great point. We talked about this longitudinal genetic counseling at the time of a child going into remission, but we also think that it's really important to have genetic counselors follow up with these families as they age out of the children's hospital as well. I think for genetic counselors, we're uniquely positioned to help improve access to care for these pediatric oncology patients in that manner. But I think there are also other things we can start to consider. Many of our families brought up that they appreciated the Kids Can Seek family letters that our genetic counselors provided, which detailed the follow-up recommendations for their specific cancer predisposition syndrome. They mentioned that it was a great resource to refer back to if they had any questions. And so I think that genetic counselors in the pediatric oncology space could consider writing these family letters for their patients, ideally in their preferred language if possible, so that they have a resource that they could look back at. I think, as I mentioned before, we also saw that different family members have different access depending on their age and their insurance status. And so I think that genetic counselors can be advocates for the entire family unit and can help raise awareness of different insurance options or financial assistance programs potentially available for other family members so that they can access care as well. And then I think in terms of considering system-wide changes, we need to find ways that we can minimize travel and coordinate care. One of the things that our team came up with is potentially implementing hereditary cancer care coordinators who could help with the scheduling of all the appointments at the specialized care centers. But these coordinators could also look at alternative service delivery methods like telemedicine or finding local specialists for patients so that these patients can get some of their care closer to home and they don't have to make as many trips to the major medical centers. Kind of a pipe dream would be that we could have these integrated longitudinal clinics where entire families across all ages could go to the same clinic to get their care done. We do have some examples of this at Texas Children, like our HHT clinic, but I do think that this would be much more difficult to implement on a larger scale. I think a lower hanging fruit would be to have more consistent intake forms that request information about social determinants of health at these clinics so that we can identify these patients that do have travel or financial barriers and make their care a little bit more personalized so that they are able to continue following up on their recommendations. I think that's very helpful in some some concrete ways that people can maybe work towards making things at least a little bit easier for some of these families. The area to kind of wrap up on is, you know, we talked about what can providers or healthcare systems do to support the families. What are some other areas in thinking about future research or so some things that focus on the field of pediatric oncology, genomic sequencing, finding cancer predisposition syndromes in the pediatric setting? Um, what are some other research areas that you think would be beneficial? One of the 
most obvious as a follow-up to what Blake did here is, you know, while we really did focus on diverse populations in Texas and, and tried to cast our net as wide as possible to capture as many voices and types of voices as possible, most of the families had some connection to a large medical center, you know, one of the hubs that were part of this research study. Um, and that is not true nationally. You know, there are many clinics out there that don't necessarily have these resources, even if it is a, a long drive, they might not even have that. Um, to be able to identify places for these patients to go. I get many calls um, from families from across the country who are trying to look for a center like ours that provides you know, uh, some of the screening and things like that. So I think we need to hear those voices next. I am a fan of qualitative research and, and I do think hearing voices from more families who are in different settings beyond what we looked at is going to be important to help get a better picture. I have been now, you know, I've been a genetic counselor for a while, but I've been in pediatric oncology for almost 13 years now. And one of the very cool things watching this field is the, the advancements we've made. We've learned our knowledge base of these conditions. Our technologies continue to grow. We do now have, I mentioned the ACR pediatric oncology series, but that gave us steps of how to follow these patients. But all of that is only as good as our ability for patients to access it. An area of research is really thinking about taking all of this knowledge that we're acquiring on the, the, the research side as far as understanding these conditions and identifying these conditions better to really think about how we can give all patients access to these tools that we're developing. And to me, you know, that's kind of a driving force of just continuing to understand patient experience, how we're communicating, um, and how we can better help them get the care that they need. I agree with all those points. And I, I also think that it is really interesting to explore this transition of care additionally. So thinking about how many patients are lost to follow up when they transition from pediatric to adult space, we don't really know at this point. And I think, again, qualitative work could be interesting and important in better understanding the full scope of barriers that these families are facing when that transition comes. So that's something that I hope in the future we see someone complete. And the quantitative work is important too. I think the qualitative work is helping us develop, you know, the questions we need to ask that um, we're going to be able to explore, you know, on a broader scale quantitatively in the future as well. Again, like you said, it allows for the input, the shared experience, and then how can you develop something where you're able to even bring in more population. So broaden the the research. And so I just appreciate you both taking the time to, to give us some background on the study um, and uh, talk to us about, you know, maybe some future areas that work can be done or research can be done. And so I just thank you both for being with us today. Thank, thank you, you for the opportunity, yeah, opportunity to be here. We appreciate it. Hi, I'm Janine Janine Austin. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Genetic Counseling, which is proudly producing DNA Dialogues. For more information about this episode, visit dnadialogues.podbean.com, where you can also stream all episodes of the show. This same link is also in the show notes for easy access. Any questions, episode ideas, guest pitches, or comments can be sent into dnadialoguespodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen. This helps us climb the charts and allow other people like you to discover the show. The DNA Dialogues team includes Naomi Wagner, Kalida Leaquat, Kate Wilson, DNA Today's Kira Janine, and myself, Janine Janine Austin. Thanks for listening to DNA Dialogues. Join us next time to explore the latest genetic counseling research.